0: Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, going to be having a chat about a bloke whose name was Alexander Selkirk, and uh, his story is one that you are probably more familiar with uh, than you realise. This bloke and his adventures in the early 18th century, they were um, quite probably a very big part of what inspired a bloke named Daniel Defoe in writing Robinson Crusoe. Uh, Robinson Crusoe, of course, a very, very famous tale about a castaway, widely considered one of the first, if not the first uh, ever English novel, Um, and it is one of the most uh, translated and published books in history. And much of it was doubtlessly inspired by the actual, factual, real-life, true history of this bloke we're going to talk about today, Alexander Selkirk, a real-life Scottish sailor. Selkirk himself was a castaway, like the fictional Robinson Crusoe, on an uninhabited island. Although he wasn't in the Caribbean like Crusoe, he was in the uh, in the Southeast Pacific. Um, he was miles away from civilization of any kind. Uh, he was left to fend for himself for, for, for years and years in total isolation. And it is, I tell you this, it's quite a tale. It's quite a tale. And Selkirk himself is quite a character. Um, his time on the, on the island was filled with adventures, misadventures, of course. But, uh, but even outside of that, Selkirk was a very, very colourful bloke, as we'll get across. Uh, and there is a lot to get across today, uh, of course. But before we start, I want to, uh, I want to thank alert listener Moritz Ebel for uh, suggesting this topic, along with a host of others. Big, long list uh, Moritz sent me. But um, uh, thank you very much, Mogens. Uh, I'd never read about this bloke before. I, I, I can't even remember if I actually even knew about him beforehand, to be honest. Uh, but it was great to learn a thing or two as I got across his story, and uh, and hopefully you'll enjoy the uh, enjoy the retelling of the story of Alexander Kel- uh, Selkirk today. Let's get underway here. A bit of naval history, a bit of pirate history, a bit of Scottish history, more or less. You uh, you you love you love to hear it. So uh, so let's get stuck in. We're going all the way back. All the way back here to 1676, and this is when Alexander Selkirk was born uh, to a tanner and his wife, a bloke named John Selkraig, and uh, Euphon Mackey, uh, in a Scottish fishing town called Lower Largo, north of Edinburgh. Now, he was born Alexander Sel Craig. his dad's name was John Sel Craig he was born Alexander Sel Craig, but he changed his name later on in life to Selkirk, um, although maybe he didn't actually actively change his name. Spelling back then, as you probably know, was largely optional, so it might just have been how someone heard his name when writing it down, maybe in a ship's manifest or something like that, but at some point later in his life, he became known as Selkirk rather than Sel Craig. Anyway... He was the seventh son of these two, of Selkirk and Mackie, and uh, his mum considered this to be a good omen and thought that he was destined for great things while his dad wanted him to learn the family trade, uh, you know, get into tanning, get into shoemaking, nothing too exciting here. Um, and whatever the case, you know, whether whether he was destined for great things or not here, Selkirk, as a, as a young lad, i tell you what, he was a real piece of work. He really was a, re- he's a young rascal, he was. He was rambunctious, he was poorly behaved, he's getting into trouble all over the place, he's starting fights, pissing people off, all sorts of stuff, right? In in 1693 at the age of 17 he was summoned to a church court right a council of elders for an offence that was very intriguingly described as indecent conduct in church now i couldn't find specifics of what this indecent conduct was must have been very juicy indeed. I wonder what he did. Anyway, uh, he never turned up, never turned up to the uh, to the church trial, never turned up to this council here, and uh, he never turned up to be judged. He actually ran away to sea instead, although uh, we're not 100% sure where. He may have even got across the Atlantic um, as part of the Darien scheme. Episode 50, you can get across that. Terrific story, of course, there. Wherever he went, however, he didn't stay there long because by 1701 he was back in Scotland, and we know this because... He was back in trouble with the law once again. This time, it was for beating his two brothers and his dad, black and blue. Uh, (laughs) Apparently, one of his brothers pranked him by, um, pretty ordinary uh, prank really, not very good, but uh, pranked him by tricking him into drinking some salt water out of a tin. Um, Not a great prank, honestly, really. I mean, it's not going to get you many YouTube likes, is it? Uh, But it did lead to a a full-on family brawl, and Selkirk got in big trouble for starting at this time, and... uh, uh, and this time around, he actually did turn up to the church's court and he was he was rebuked for his conduct, although he was never really punished sort of particularly heavily for beating up his brothers. But it wasn't long after this, after, you know, sort of rearing his head back in Scotland and, um, and you know, establishing that he was back in his home country, it wasn't long that he was, uh, he was off again. Uh, in 1703, Selkirk left Scotland once again, this time as a privateer. You may have heard this term before in the, in the context of naval history. Naval history, privateer. It is essentially just a fancy way of saying pirate. For those who don't know the specific differences, I'll explain it very quickly here. A privateer um, was a was a vessel, a privateer ship filled with privateers, um, uh, authorised by a government to attack and pillage enemy ships, ships and settlements. Right. So. Effectively, a pirate that was playing for one of the teams rather than just going after ever going after anyone. So a pirate in all but name, really. You'd get a letter of mark from a government authority. This piece of paper meant that all the killing and the plundering uh, that you were doing was absolutely fine. Legal. Don't even worry about it, no worries at all. I mean, no worries and and you know you're not getting hanged as a pirate and by your team. anyway, you know if you got if you got caught by the enemy nation that you were you were pillaging and looting, you, you're absolutely out of luck there. But essentially, what it did was it was legalise pirates so long as they agreed to play for a certain team. And they, you know, as more or less state sponsored pri- pirates, it was a they were, they were a clever way to mobilise non-military ships to help fight wars. It was a way for governments to sort of get these ships around pillaging whatever else, give them the, a bit of protection uh, from the law, and have them point their efforts at, at one. You know nation or group of nations in particular rather than going after everyone so you know civilian captains right they would uh, they get their letters of mark they go off and attack ships and towns on the wrong team promise of riches and booty motivating the crew members um and obviously quite a number of a number of actual pirates signed on as privateers people who had you know had been running up the black flag they uh, they actually signed on to become a privateer for this nation or that nation whatever else um, and, uh, this obviously limited the spread of their pickings as they were agreeing not to attack certain nation ships, but in exchange, they got a thin, a thin veil of legitimacy and some legal protection for going and, you know, attacking other nation ships. And I said a lot of pirates signed on as privateers and one such pirate who became a privateer for his native England was the famous William Dampier. Uh, by 1703, he had already pillaged his way through the Caribbean as a pirate He'd explored parts of the Australian coastline. He'd been court-martialed for cruelty. Um, he would later go on to be uh, one of the first, if not the first, uh, people to circumnavigate the globe three times, so he definitely got around, William Dampier, Um but right now in 1703, he is set on becoming a privateer captain for the English. And the reason that the English are looking to mobilize privateers is, of course, as you no doubt know, the War of the Spanish Succession has just kicked off. It broke out in 1701, and the English were mobilizing—that was a joke, by the way. You may not have heard of the the War of the Spanish Succession. It was a pretty big war, but it was also like— Three hundred years ago, so you know one one of the one of the footnotes, one of the many wars that went on back then. Anyway, the War of the Spanish Spanish Succession, seventeen oh one, the English were mobilizing privateers to attack French and Spanish interests around the globe. As um, this uh, the, the, the the French and Spanish Bourbons fought more or less everyone else in Europe. Um, a fascinating war; it, it is worth reading about. But well, I say fascinating. Not really that interesting in, in terms of like making an episode out of it, but kind of interesting in terms of, you know, if, you, if you're if you into that sort of thing, which I guess there's a good chance you are. You're listening to a boring history podcast right now, so War of the Spanish Succession episode at some point, maybe we'll see. Anyway, William Dampier. Hired as a uh, as a privateer by the English, this is what uh, led him to you know set off in command of two ships bound for the South American Pacific as an English privateer to attack any Spani- Spanish settlements and ships there. And on board one of these ships, of course, why am I telling you about all this? It's because on board one of Dampier's ships was our mate Alexander Selkirk. He worked as the navigator, uh, which tells us by now that he must have built up a good amount of naval experience already. He's obviously very experienced as a sailor if he's if he's you know getting a job straight as a navigator. But Dampier heads off in command of these two ships. Uh, Dampier's vessel is called the Saint George, and its companion vessel is the uh, the Cinque Ports under the companion uh, under the compa- command, I should say, command of a bloke whose name was Charles Pickering. And um, uh, these two ships, they say, they set sail from the British Isles in September seventeen o three. And I'll tell you this: both the ships horribly overcrowded, horribly overcrowded. The Saint George, for example, had. Five times as many crew members as it actually needed. And the reason for this is this extra crew would be very necessary if the ships actually achieved their goal of capturing Spanish vessels and taking them as prizes. Obviously, if they're going down into Spanish waters down in uh, South America, they're looking to capture Spanish uh, Spanish ships and take them as uh, as prizes, you know, sail them away. They're going to need a crew to do that. So they overcrewed these privateer ships so they'd have a surplus crew um, uh, to, uh, you know, to, to, to sail any prize ships. Also because, you know... A bunch of them were going to die. I mean, let's let's not forget about the fact that everything from typhoid to yellow fever to scurvy was going to ravage these ships' crews. And, you know, that was actually built into the equation when crewing vessels like this, you needed a, a few spare, I guess. Anyway, these two ships, uh, they set off and the voyage to the Southeast Pacific began. I'll tell you this, though, it was not a happy one. The crews, they were ill disciplined, they were restless. The officers didn't get on. Dampier, he's buddy getting on the source. He loved a drink, did William Dampier. He was getting on the source. Um, the general conditions for the sailors uh, on both these ships was just horrible, right? Like there's disease, there's uh, there's uh, the, the supplies that they're brought are rotting and uh, infested with rats and insects or whatever else. It, it really is just foul. It's horrible, horrible way to uh, horrible way to live. And uh, well, a lot of people actually didn't. <laughs> as a result, within two months, uh, a huge number of people had died as a result of disease or, or whatever else, including including. The captain of the Cinque Ports, uh, Captain Pickering, he died of a fever in November as the ships were sailing along the coast of Brazil. And as a result of the death of Pickering, uh, command of the Cinque Ports, the the ship that Selkirk is navigating for, command of the ship was given to a bloke whose name was Thomas Stradling. Now, he's a young bloke. He's in his early 20s. He was not popular with the crew. And his appointment as captain went down like a fart in an elevator. I can tell you that much. The crew, they're all bloody sick. The supplies are rotten. Everyone's having a terrible time. And Selkirk's quick temper and his belligerent attitude, right, they mean that he's butting heads with this new captain constantly, as indeed are you know, so many people on the ship because straddling, as I say, not a popular bloke. In February 1704, these ships, they round Cape Horn down the south, uh, the, 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 the south end of South America there. They weathered mighty storms, as they did so, and straddling stocks uh, as captain are only getting worse and worse as he you know, he goes from poor decision to poor decision. He's, he's, he's making a real mess of things there. Apparently, he's a very arrogant uh, young man. Um, in fact, it's so bad that once they make it through the Strait of Magellan, uh, there is almost a mutiny as the ships make their way into the Pacific. But Dampier, he stepped in from the St. George. He quelled the unrest on the Ports for the time being and, and restored a bit of order. But even so, as the ships, they headed north uh, up the west coast of South America, doing a bit of plundering here, doing a bit of looting there. Some were successful, others weren't. And uh, there is still a lot of tension on these ships as they get involved in their uh, in their pir- oh, sorry, piracy, excuse me, how dare I, the privateering that they're doing against the Spanish here. Uh, they're doing stuff like that, you know, they'd, they'd uh, plan raids on, on gold mining towns, uh, they would capture... Um, stocked Spanish merchant ships, and and you know that this would leave the crews, the crew reveling in booty uh, any time this sort of thing happened. But still, none of this, even the great successes they had, none of this entirely undid all of the issues that the crew on these ships were having. The tensions were very high, conditions weren't great, and even the captains of the two ships weren't getting on. Now Straddling and uh, and Dampier are at each other's throats, and things got so bad between the two men, in fact, that. Uh, in May 1704, even though their privateering is going reasonably well, Stradling actually decided to set off and and sail away from the Saint George on the on the Chinque ports on his own. Right, so uh, so he's going a separate way here, Stradling. The two ships separated. Selkirk continued um, navigating uh, for the Cinque ports under Stradling. There's more looting, more pillaging, all the all the normal privateer stuff that you'd expect. But by September, there's a new problem. Right, so they've abandoned the Saint George. They've, you know, Dampier's gone off to do whatever he does, and Stradling's doing a reasonable job of keeping the booty flowing. But new issue emerges now in September because by September the Cinque ports is in extremely bad nick. This uh, th- this boat, this ship, sorry, it is limping along. It's full of holes. Its timbers are worm eaten. The crew is pumping out of uh, pumping water out of the hole twenty four seven just to keep it afloat. Right, so. That month in September, uh, the ship, in desperate need of repairs, it put in on an uninhabited island. And already now, your ears are pricking up and you know what's coming, right? They pull in on an uninhabited island to attempt repairs of the ship. Uh, In addition to that, they're going to replenish what stocks and supplies they could from the island's natural resources, maybe there's some food, some fresh water, that sort of thing. Now, this island was known as Mas Atiera. Uh, located almost seven hundred kilometers west of the South American coastline, uh, smallish island. You know, it's not this sort of tiny spit of sand with some palm trees that you'd imagine. Not a desert island like that, but it is thinish. It's elongated. It's around ten to fifteen kilometers in length, um, and just under fifty square kilometers in area. So it is. It's it's a smallish island, right? And the Chinquaport stayed there for about a month. Um, as the crew, they did some superficial maintenance to the ship. They restocked the fresh water supplies. They caught goats uh, and crayfish. They dug up some turnips uh, and restocked the, the food supplies there. And generally just chilled out a bit after being you know, stuck for so long on an overcrowded, stinking, smelling, disease-ridden ship. However... At the end of a month, straddling, he ordered the crew back aboard the ship and told them to make ready to put out to sea again. Now, a lot of the crew weren't happy with this for more reasons than one. Not only is the ship obviously stinking horrible, but it's also in a very, in very bad nick. As I said, it's, it's full of holes, it's worm, the timbers are worm-eating, whatever else, right? And no one was more unhappy with this decision to go back to sea with the ship being in the state it was than our mate Alexander Selkirk, and he refused to continue sailing Unless the ship was properly repaired. Selkirk said that the worm-eaten ship, it wasn't seaworthy, that it was going to sink in a heartbeat, and that they should stay on the island and do proper actual repairs on it. They were going to, he said we should remain here and, and you know repair it properly. He said that he would rather remain there on the island rather than get back on a vessel that he thought was bound to sink and be the death of them all. And don't you know it? Straddling, called his bluff straddling took him up on it selkirk's there going mate i'd rather bloody stay here than getting back on that leaky tub and straddling goes mate fill your boots he goes no worries have it your way stay on the island you can stay here no worries at all we'll leave without you now selkirk assumed that straddling was bluffing right he assumed that this actually wasn't going to happen and so, attempted to rally other crew members into what was almost essentially at this point a mutiny. He's trying to get the other crew members to see his point of view and go, listen, boys, we can't get on that ship. It's going to be super unsafe. It's going to, you know, going to sink beneath the waves the moment it pulls out of the, the harbour. Uh, but none of them listened. None of them listened. Some of them were sympathetic to what he was saying, but um, uh, you know, him saying that they all need to refuse to, ta- to sail and force straddling to undertake the repairs that the ship needed. No, they weren't going to follow through on that and they were going to listen to the captain. So both men, Selkirk and Stradling here, they are waiting to see who is going to relent first. Straddling, he gets he goes up to Selkirk, he gives him a musket, a pistol, some gunpowder, uh, a knife and a hatchet, a cooking pot, some cheese, jam, tobacco and rum, and some clothing and bedding, and as well as a Bible. And he says, off you go, mate, off you go, enjoy your new island, all to yourself. If you're not going to get back on the ship, we're not repairing We're out of here and we're going to leave without you. And so Selkirk, as we you know, as we well and truly know, he's belligerent. He's got a bit of a temper, and he went, mate, get it up here. I don't even care. I'd rather bloody stay here than go off in that, you know, that uh, this leaky boat. Uh, you you know, see you later. You can uh, you can tell your story. Walk, tell your story sailing, right? Because he didn't think that straddling would actually leave without him. He didn't think he was going. He thought he was going to be able to force the issue. And little did he know, however, right, that straddling, was more than happy to abandon his navigator in this way. He's still waiting for Stradling to give in. But as Selkirk waded through the water towards land with his supplies, making a great big carry-on, making a great big show of, uh, of you know, abandoning or of, 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 of sort of sticking it to the captain in this way, Stradling began to weigh anchor and got ready to leave. And so Selkirk he realized, bloody hell, I'm actually, I'm, a- I'm actually going to be left here. I'm going to be, I'm going to be left here alone. So, finally, Selkirk, he's there, he's up to his waist in water, he's carrying his meagre possessions, and he, he realises he's in trouble. He turns around, he gives in, he says, all right, mate, listen, okay, all right, Captain, you've had your fun, I get it, let me back on board, I'll come back on, I'll come and navigate, you know, even though the ship's, uh, you, know, you know, fall to bits and it's full of holes, whatever else, I'll come back on, it's all right, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry about that, mate. Straddling, mate, ice in his veins, he turns around, he says, nah, missed your chance, big fella, missed your chance, he showed no pity. No compassion. And Selkirk's pleas to be let back on the ship fell on deaf ears. He refused to let Selkirk back onto the ship. He stood there. The ship is pulling out of the out of the bay, right? He stood there with his bloody, you know, wheel of cheese and his tobacco and his, his hatchet, his knife, his guns, whatever else. And the ship's just pulling out as he's standing there bloody saying, no, don't let me back on. I'm sorry, it. I'm sorry. I didn't mean it. The ship set sail, right, towards the open sea because straddling here at this point He's using Selkirk as an example. He's using it as, as an example of the rest of the dis, this discontent undisciplined crew. He used the situation as a warning to show just how hard-assed he could be as the captain and and you know to whip the rest of them in line and and as the ship set off, Selkirk is left in its wake, abandoned on this uninhabited island all alone, not another human for hundreds and hundreds of miles. Now, being marooned like this, uh, it, it did happen. We've talked about it in the show beforehand. It was, it was often the punishment for mutiny. And in the overwhelming majority of cases, it resulted in the death of those who were marooned. This is a dire and desperate situation for Selkirk. His scanty supplies are not going to last him long, and who knows what untold horrors are waiting for him further inland on the island. I mean, this is, you know, you cannot imagine how it must have felt to be so disconnected from the rest of the world by watching, you know, the the, the only humans for hundreds of kilometres around you getting in that ship and sailing off. The island isn't huge, but it certainly is big enough when you start, you know, it's big enough when you're stuck on it by yourself. It's got mountains and valleys and trees and cliffs, and uh, there's a lot to properly explore on your own. But for now, however, Selkirk, He's in a small Half Moon Bay, today it's known as Cumberland Bay. He's got his small bundle of things, and he's wondering just what the bloody hell he's going to do with himself. But to begin with, to begin with, he sets himself up a small camp on the shore of the bay, and he does this in that in that spot, hoping that another ship would come along soon and rescue him, because it was one of the most obvious points to uh, places to, uh, to to moor your ship. Uh, I guess not moor if there's not a mooring. I don't know, park your ship. I don't know what you do when you're stopping your ship. This this bay was the most obvious place to do it, whatever it's called. And so he waited, he caught crayfish for food, he, you know, constantly lapsed into loneliness and despair, he was wishing and wishing that he hadn't run his mouth and argued so fiercely about the seaworthiness of the Chinqua ports. But no new ships came as he waited day in and day out, and after a time, he actually couldn't continue to stay on the shoreline of the bay. He couldn't stay down by the water's edge because it began to become overrun by enormous sea lions. Now, mating season was approaching for these. It uh, was approaching for these huge, incredibly noisy animals. These sea lions—they didn't shut up day and night. They're roaring and bellowing and bloody having a great big carry-on as they're rooting each other. And so Selkirk, he has to bloody—you know—he doesn't have his—he doesn't have his—you know—the the, the, the earplug things you get there in, in an aeroplane. Doesn't have anything like that, mate. What's he going to do? So he has to pack up his. He packs up all his belongings. And he finally moves inland because he's just not getting any sleep. These, these sea lions are out at night and day, mate. They're, 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 they're absolutely, they're not giving him a moment's peace. And I have to say, after moving a bit further inland, Selkirk adapted to wilderness survival incredibly well. He used his knife and his hatchet to fashion uh, himself two wooden huts. He used the wood of a, of a local pepper tree. Uh, he used one of the huts for cooking and he used the other, other for sleeping. And he also made himself new tools. He fashioned new tools out of bits of metal that he'd scrounged from some abandoned barrels that had been left on the shore. And he kept a fire going constantly after lighting it with the flint on his musket. So he lit a fire and then was constantly feeding it to make sure it would uh, would stay alight. You know, through uh, through through everything to make sure he had a, a constant source of fire. And luckily. The island had plenty of food for him as well. He, he he did not go hungry. There was the crayfish, there were the turnips that I mentioned before. These were both native to the island, and there was also that population of feral goats that I mentioned. They'd been left behind uh, by visiting European ships, and they'd flourished on this island without uh, too many predators. And so there was a there was quite a large colony of goats that he uh, he was able to uh, to hunt and uh, and and use for food. Um, and on top of that, right. You know, he's running around. He's hunting the goats with his musket. Obviously, conserving his gunpowder as best as he could before it ran out, run away, all ran out altogether. And 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 after that, even he continued to hunt the goats. He actually chased them on foot, and eventually he became so adept uh, adept at running around the island in this way that he could actually run outrun the goats, chase them down, and 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 kill them on foot, which is quite incredible. Um, but on top of that, on top of that, as I say. There were other plants. There were vegetables. There were uh, there were berries. There were pepper trees. There was this weird cabbage-like plant that he found, as well as watercress. Uh, and he also varied his diet uh, diet with seal every now and again. Um, he you know he'd go and he'd go and get a sea lion or or a seal and and pop that on the fire as well every now and again. But he didn't <laughs> he didn't take to eating the fish. That lived around the island, uh, and I, I did find this quite amusing. He he did do a bit of fishing, but he ended up not incorporating the fish as a staple of his survival diet. And the reason for that is um, uh, they had the uh, they had well eating the fish made him. Uh, now what's the uh, what's the term we use on this show? They had him uh, squirting like a country goose, I guess you could say. Sounds like the fish were made. Uh, sounds like the fish made it. So he could have do- done it through a bloody screen door, mate. <laughs> so. <laughs> Oh dear. So he left the uh, he left the fish alone. He left the fish alone, and uh, instead uh, survived mainly on goat. He'd he'd cook up goat and put it in a stew with the watercress and some of the veggies and that sort of stuff. And he he lived he lived on goat stew principally. However, despite um you know despite this sort of plentiful source of food that he had, despite despite the the shelter that he built for himself here. He did face um, some very real challenges. And, you know, I'm not just talking about, like, the dreadful, terrifying, existential loneliness that he was feeling. When he moved inland, um, obviously, he got away from the noise of the sea lions, but he instead had to contend with a different animal this time around. Great big colonies of rats, again, introduced by European ships that had stopped there. Um, As he slept, right, these rats, they would swarm into his huts. They would attack. They'd not just eat his food, but also bite and nibble away at his clothing and even climbed all over him and they'd bite and attack him as well as he slept. Every night he'd be assaulted by these rodents. But luckily, help for this problem was also at hand. In a very sort of old woman who lived in a shoe turn of events, the island was also home to a colony of feral cats that had also been introduced by Europeans. And so he worked to domesticate some of these cats with food, and they helped keep the rats away from him at night. He actually ended up having a pet cat or two on this deserted island, which really isn't too bad. But after a while, another challenge he faced once he dealt with his rats, and uh, after, after quite a while living on the island here, He faced a new challenge because his clothing and his shoes wore away to the point of uselessness. But here, his experience growing up as the son of a tanner came in very handy because obviously he grew up working with leather and, you know, making shoes and knowing how to do this sort of thing. So he was able to fashion himself new garments using goat skin. He stitched them together with an old nail that he found. And, uh, and and sort of, you know, pulled put together a, a very rudimentary outfit, a very primitive outfit of, uh, of of skin that he took off some of the goats that he'd killed. So really starting to look like a bit of a wild man here. But he didn't replace his shoes. Interestingly, despite the fact that his dad was a, a tanner and a shoemaker, he didn't replace his shoes because he didn't need to. He found that after, after so long of running around on the island like this, his feet had grown tough, thick, leathery soles like a bloody hobbit, mate. Um, you know, after running around the island, uh, the, the, the stones and the sticks and whatever else, hunting his goats, he just didn't need to wear shoes anymore. So these are some of the challenges he's faced there. But obviously the biggest one, uh, the one that didn't go away for, throughout his entire time on the island here, was the loneliness. The horrific, crippling loneliness, the isolation. And, and, and one of the biggest problems he had was, was just keeping himself sane as the weeks turned to months. And then eventually the months turned to years, all by himself. He would read passages from the, from his Bible aloud to himself. He'd sing songs to himself as well so as not to lose his language facilities and, and you know, make sure he didn't forget how to speak. And... Uh, in, in order to also pass the time and you know, give himself some, some, some interesting diversions to pursue, uh, he became interested in the local wildlife. He would watch the fish and, and turtles and hummingbirds as they went, uh, went about their business. And, and that's you know, some, of the, some of the way that he'd, uh, he'd pass the time there. But he was also on constant lookout for passing ships, right? He spent a lot of time in an elevated area of the island, around 550 metres above sea level. And this area commanded a, a very wide and sweeping view of the surrounding oceans. And the reason that he was looking out for ships was twofold, of course. Now, number one, he was obviously hoping that he would be rescued. He was hoping that a passing ship would, uh, w- would be able to pull in at the island and, uh, and rescue him and take him away from this, uh, this forsaken place. But the other thing, the other reason, that he, was, uh, that he was peeling his eyes while keeping an eye, uh, you know, a look on the horizon for any, uh, any ships there, was that he had been marooned in waters that were most heavily sailed by Spaniards. And as a Scot, he would be in big trouble if they discovered him there. Scotland was Spain's enemy in the War of the Spanish Succession, don't forget. And the Spanish were not known for their kindness to prisoners. In fact, if he was captured... Selkirk knew that he'd face imprisonment, he'd face torture, and then probably enslavement on top of that. So he did not want to get caught by the Spanish. While he was looking out for ships, he was staying vigilant to avoid the Spanish colours. You know, he didn't want to be detected by uh, by any Spanish visiting parties. And this also meant that he had to keep his fire burning quite low most of the time, as uh, again, being abandoned on the island was ultimately preferable to being captured by the spanish and i'll tell you this he had some very close calls he had some very close calls not once but twice he saw a spanish ship on the horizon and the spanish ship la- these spanish ships they landed two different ships landed on this island where he was and once he was even spotted they saw his fire they saw his smoke and they came looking for him he was seen and he had to flee at top speed he was chased across the island by some of these spaniards who had landed um he hid from uh, these uh, these Spaniards by climbing up a tree, and one account that I read even claimed that these Spaniards stopped and hung a piss under the very same tree in which he was hiding, but that may have been a bit of an exaggeration or an embellishment. I'm not hundred percent sure if that happened, but he definitely was spotted he definitely was seen and pursued um uh, by these Spaniards, but he did have the uh, the home ground advantage and he did uh, he did manage to evade capture but for years and years years and years, this was the only human interaction that Alexander Selkirk had at all. It was the only interaction of being chased by some but <laughs> chased by some Spanish people across an island, fleeing and hiding from them before being abandoned to solitude once more. That was the only time they interacted with any, any other humans for years. He was marooned in or around October 1704, and for the next four years and four months he survived totally alone, dressed in goatskins, great big bushy beard becoming wilder by the day. But it all came to an end, as I say, four years and four months after being left behind by Stradling and the Cinque ports, because on the 2nd of February, 1709, after years and years of dragging him himself through this unimaginable trial, Alexander Selkirk finally died. No, he was rescued. He was rescued. He was fine. <laughs> he, he was fine. He survived the thing. He survived the whole ordeal. A uh, An English privateer ship uh, called the Duke emerged from across the horizon, um, sailed towards Mas Atiera, and put in at the very same island here. Its captain was the famous uh, Woods Rogers. You may have heard of this bloke. Uh, he went on to be the become the first royal governor of the Bahamas, very famous fellow uh, in early 18th century naval uh, history. But this time around, Rogers was leading an expedition that would later go on uh, to circumnavigate the globe as a privateer He was obviously attempting to attack Spanish interests. But at this point, his ships were running short of fresh supplies. Luckily, however, the pilot of of the Duke, the bloke who was actually steering the ship, he had been in these waters before. He knew of an island that they could put in and restock their stores. And so it was that Rogers and the Duke approached Mas Artierra. When the ship arrived, however, they saw smoke from a fire. Immediately, immediately, they were very suspicious. Very suspicious indeed. They were on their guard in case the fire was coming from a Spanish shore party. Don't forget, of course, they are effectively at war with the Spanish. They don't want to run on, uh, run into uh, them if they if they don't have to. They're not ready to to fight. They certainly don't want to be over uh, uh, overpowered or outnumbered here. So they're on their guard. And when they pull up to uh, the island, Rogers sent a group of armed men ashore to investigate the smoke and they creep through the island up to uh, up to where this fire is and you can only imagine their surprise when they found not a gang of spaniards but a long lost Scot with a huge beard dressed in goatskins alexander selkirk himself finally delivered from his lonesome trials aboard this island. They brought him back to the Duke, and you can only imagine his surprise at being rescued. Finally, his deliverance was at hand as these uh, these men who spoke the same language as him, sailing under colours that were friendly to him, brought him back to the ship. But once he got back to the Duke, there was one more surprise in store for Selkirk here, because the pilot... Who had guided Rogers to this island, the bloke who had sailed these waters before and knew of this island, was none other than William Dampier, the bloke who had been in charge of the St. George all those years ago before Selkirk had been abandoned. He could hardly believe his eyes as Selkirk came uh, aboard the Of course, he recognized him, he recognized him from the voyage four years ago. He was able to vouch for him and tell his, you know, and and, and back up his half the story. Which is very lucky because Selkirk was having a lot of trouble communicating with his rescuers. He hasn't spoken to another human for four years, nearly four and a half years. Um, he could hardly talk. Uh, Rogers later wrote about how Selkirk was uh, incredibly difficult to understand. He he wouldn't finish words. He would just sort of half, he, he would, not, never mind finish his sentences, he wouldn't finish his words. Had a lot of trouble telling his story clearly. And fair enough. As I say, first conversation he's had in a long time. The poor bastard, since being abandoned for you know, again arguing with Straddling about the seaworthiness of the of the Chinquaports. Oh, by the way, interestingly, Selkirk was completely right about that. Um, I wonder how he felt. I really do wonder how he felt when he found out what happened because shortly after abandoning Selkirk on uh, on this island, the Chinquaports founded right. It sank, and almost all the crew died. About a dozen or so of them survived, including Straddling, and then those survivors were taken prisoner, prisoner by the Spanish. So a very interesting and long-awaited vindication for Selkirk then. I really, I just, I'd love to know. I, I wish we knew how he responded. You know, was it with angry jubilation or was he perhaps, was it bittersweet for him? I don't know. It's just fascinating to think about after all those years, him saying, oh no, it's a it's a leaky tub, I'm not getting back aboard it. And he was right. I really wonder what his reaction to that news was. Anyway, despite Selkirk being rescued by Rogers and Dampier on the Duke, it was actually Selkirk who helped rescue the chances of this long voyage that the Duke was undertaking. Because don't forget, they were in need of help too. As I said before, their stores of fresh supplies were low. They needed water and meat and vegetables. Um, But with Selkirk's help, the ship was soon replenished. He caught goats for the men to eat, again, going hunting bare feet, um, and helped them to secure plenty of fresh vegetables from the island to take with them. And Rogers remarked afterwards that he could hardly believe uh, Selkirk's condition. He was fit and muscular. He ran at incredible speeds across the island while he was hunting goats. Um, And once the ship's stores were replenished, the Duke set off, once again, of course, bringing Selkirk with them, once again employed, uh, being employed this time, uh, as he was before, as a navigator. Selkirk left behind the island that had been his home for so long, with the two huts, the cats and the hunting trails that he blazed along, and um, a lot fewer goats than had been there beforehand, I guess you could say. Uh, he was able to abandon the goat skins that he'd been wearing, of course. Uh, he was given fresh clothes by the people on the ship, but he did have a lot of difficulty wearing shoes again. His feet were so rough and calloused after years on the island that he found shoes very, very uncomfortable indeed. Um, and also, when they offered him ships rations, he found them very unpleasant and hard to stomach. After years on fresh meat and vegetables, he, he didn't enjoy eating, you know, salted meat and ship's biscuits. They, uh, he spent a long time. Uh, on the ship with Rogers because Rogers wasn't setting sail for Europe straight away after leaving uh, Massatierra. No, he 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 stuck around in this part of the world for a long time. He had a lot more privateering that needed to be done now that his supplies were full. And so for the next 2 years, he led a very very successful expedition up and down the coast of South America, raiding and pillaging the Spanish on behalf of the British. But eventually this voyage came to an end. Rogers and his expedition returned home with the riches that they had plundered and the ships that they'd captured and arrived back and the British Isles in 1711. And with this Selkirk had finally returned after eight years away. And when he came back, he found that Scotland and England were no longer separate realms. In 1707, the Acts of Union had brought the countries together to create Great Britain. So he didn't come back to Scotland so much as he came back to Great Britain. But once he landed, once he arrived, he actually stayed in London for some time. And um, before too long, he was uh, he was right back to uh, right back to being his old self just before you know just as he'd been before he'd left because uh, in September 1713 he was charged with assault so obviously got to, you know he didn't find it too hard to adjust back to his old ways it seems anyway after his return uh, Selkirk was he was something of a celebrity. Uh, his story was fascinating, and people uh, people loved to hear it. And he travelled uh, he travelled around, telling it far and wide, having his meals and his drinks bought brought, uh, bought for him. He was also reasonably wealthy himself, thanks to his share of the plunder that had been taken by Roger's expedition. So he he would really done all right. He'd done pretty well. He'd really done all right for himself there. Eventually, he returned north to Scotland to Lower Largo, where he he eloped with a woman whose name was Sophia Bruce. Uh, but it wasn't long before he was back at sea. Um, and then in 1720. He, uh, he married a woman named Frances Candace. But again, it, uh, it, well, he didn't stay with her for too long. Uh, he returned to the waves once again, signing onto a warship that uh, he, was uh, heading off to hunt pirates. And uh, I'm sorry to say that this would be his last voyage. The, the warship, the, the HMS Weymouth, uh, after it set off to, uh, to hunt pirates on the, on the coast of Africa, it was uh, ravaged by typhoid, by yellow fever. And one of the victims uh, was uh, indeed our mate, Alexander Selkirk, who died on the 13th of December, 1721, and was buried at sea. But of course, his story lives on to this very day, although in you know an entirely different way. Because after returning to Britain, Woods Rogers, the captain, the, the, the bloke who would go on to become the governor of the Bahamas, he wrote a detailed account of his expedition around the world, which was published in 1712. And it was a very popular book, in no small part, because... It told the story of finding Alexander Selkirk as a castaway on this island, having you know been lost for, for four years by himself. Uh, it told the story of his rescue and as a result was it was a bestseller. And further than this, right, one of Roger's good friends was a man named Daniel Defoe, who used the story of Selkirk as well as you know many other stories of castaways and maroonings that he picked up over the years. To write his uh, immensely famous and enormously successful 1719 novel *Robinson Crusoe*, which I'm sure you've heard, it is one of the uh, one of the most important and, uh, and and most significant works of literature from this period, and as I say, is in the running for the, being the first ever um, English language novel. Today, the island upon which Alexander Selkirk was marooned is, of course, known as. Robinson Crusoe Island. I mean, yeah. The the one next to it, not the one that he was on, but the one next to it, around 180 kilometers away, is called Alejandro Selkirk Island, named after him. But the one that he was actually on isn't named after him, but named after the story that was, you know, inspired by him. Very, very clever bit of tourism marketing from Chile there. Well done, mate. But in any case, the story of Alexander Selkirk lives on to this very day as an inspiration to one of the most famous pieces of literature ever written but that's it that's all she wrote today sports fans that is the story of alexander selkirk the castaway and inspiration for robinson crusoe it is thought Thanks so much for tuning in, and thanks again, uh, thanks once again to Moritz for this uh, terrific suggestion. If you'd like to follow in the footsteps of Moritz and send in a suggestion of your own, please do. Um, uh, jump on the website, halfhousehistory.net. There's a contact form there you can use to contact me, of course. And links to find the Patreon if you'd like to support the show financially. I certainly do appreciate each and every one of you who's doing this. So uh, thanks so much. You can do this and gain access to early access to the episodes or show notes or um, uncut recordings where I leave all my burps and my farts in. Uh, so if that's the sort of content that speaks to you, hey, I've got it for you, ready to go. Uh, Patreon.com slash half house you want to get across that. And of course, thank you for listening. Just, I mean, that's that's support enough in uh, in many ways. So thank you so much for, for tuning in, being part of the show and uh, for telling your mates about it as well. Uh, very much appreciate anyone who is spreading the good word of this dumb podcast. Anyway, going to close out the show as ever with a question posed on Reddit here. This one comes to us from Redditor Medicine Boy. We've been talking about pirates a little bit here and uh, this is an interesting question about pirates. Medicine Boy asks... Can you tell how old a pirate is by cutting off his peg leg and counting the rings?